Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast with a word about our sponsor, Huber Engineered Woods. There are really three reasons why I think Huber Engineered Woods stands out, and it's a big part of why they're a sponsor of our Unbuild It podcast. First, they develop systems of products. The products are compatible and integrated. Makes our jobs a lot more easy in the field and when specifying. Second is superior tech support. There are really good website resources that they have developed for the application of their products, but they also have an outstanding uh, 800 number tech team that really knows their stuff. And the last is a really active technical research and development team with whom I've done a lot of work over the years and I have a lot of faith in the information I get from them when I have questions about product performance. So that's it. That's our high performance sponsor. Now onto the podcast. Good day and welcome to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Jake Bruton. Today I am joined by my co-host Steve Basic. Hello. And Peter Yost does exist because he's here. <laughs> I'm here. And uh, this is one that this is a topic we've covered multiple times. Does anybody want to take a guess at what it is and pretend like we didn't just talk about how great the Unbuilded podcast is? is uh, yes. So not the dinner room conversation that we all try to convince our wives to have. <laughs> no, this is uh, uh, questions and answers. Ooh. So your questions are answers. Nice. Uh, we should do an A and Q sometime. We should ask the like, questions. Well, yeah, we should bring that the like answers. Unbuilded Jeopardy. Yeah, you bring the answers and then oh, ask the question. Jeopardy. Like, okay, so this is the answer. What's the question? Well, we kind of did <coughs> unbuild it. Uh, we kind of did unbuild it Jeopardy at IBS this year. You weren't there. I. Oh yeah, you did, guys cheated. Uh, I remember trivia that. against uh, Steve and Christine Williamson and cheated. handily walked away with the you win cheated. on that one. I heard that part. Yeah, <laughs> I have a video of it. If anybody he had wants all the to watch answers it. to the questions, prior oh, to uh, him and Chris <laughs> says the person that helped make sure the answers were going to be okay to. Uh, no, so we have uh, you guys do send in questions, and if you want to send in questions, it's questions at unbuilditpodcast dot com. That's the email address you can send them to. <clears throat> if they appear to be pressing, uh, we try to answer as many as we can. We get more than what we can. Uh, like email respond we take turns actually when i say we take turns i think peter and i answer questions and steve pretends to not see the emails <laughs> and just lets us handle well, one he or does two. do a lot of videos on this i've done work, one so. or two sure. and you guys are better at answering the questions i get frustrated <laughs> oh, we're, oh, oh that's because we're, we're better. better at it okay well sure. just an Note appropriate response is you're a stupid idiot maybe you should get out of building and consider <laughs> computer science wasting okay. my time now i know <laughs> i don't do it <laughs> So I don't Quit wasting answer. our time with do the Q and A's. Garbage questions. I actually <laughs> taught with a, a a guy early in the, my architecture career, and he used to tell people. He said, "Maybe you should really consider getting out of architecture <laughs> and going into computer science." Gosh, I feel okay, like where are we? There's a certain level of insult, but you need to think about a different career. <laughs> that's would pretty, hurt. That, that that's. I mean, hard. if somebody said it to me now, I'd be like, "Oh, piss off, whatever." But when you're young and early not young. confident. Yeah. And somebody's like, this is just not for you. <laughs> uh, well, let's jump right in. I So I have, I don't know, a handful of questions here. Uh, and we'll just go in the order that I dragged and dropped them. Cool. Uh, the first one's from Paul. Hello, Paul. 
Hi, Unbuilded Podcast. I'm a carpenter from the UK living and working in Denmark. I just wanted to let you know that in Denmark, we take construction moisture very seriously. We check moisture content before we close framing. We run heaters and dehumidifiers during the drying stage and even in summer if required. Even the painters check moisture content of the internal face of the external brick walls before applying finishes. There's no question here. I just thought that was a, yeah. a great I, I remember statement. reading that comment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and you were relieved that it didn't require an answer. Yeah. It, was, it was nice. <laughs> we got to the end. I was like, hey, no, no answer required. I don't, I don't even Check have to that box. tell this person thank you for email. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. Good job. I think, answer. I think it's a great. It's a great mm-hmm. point. Uh, the the idea that like trust but verify that unless you know you don't know. So the idea of just saying oh well the house has been going for a while so it's dry, that's not the same thing as we know it's dry. And I think we do know there are trades that check the moisture content materials, hardwood flooring. You know that's a big deal for them. But I never heard of a painter, even though the trigger on the Delmhorse pin type moisture meter for the yellow light is 15%. And that's not for mold or mildew. That's the maximum it should be for before you apply a finished surface to, to something. So that's kind of interesting that the meter's set up for that. Um, it also made me happy that we're doing a lot of the same stuff. I mean, we don't across have the external big, brick that they're going to be applying a finish to. But what, what do they call the Atlantic Ocean? The big listen, the name, pond? The big pond. I, can, I don't know. I'm just happy we got somebody in the UK listening to us. Yeah, I agree. Actually, he's in Denmark, if you paid attention. I did. Well, he's from UK. Okay. Correct. So I did listen. I'm from Colombia. That doesn't mean that I'm... Yeah, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody cares. Uh, All right. The next one is from B. By the way, thank you to Paul. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Love your show. Unless I uh, have not been putting in the right keywords to get this information, I have not been very successful at finding more information uh, regarding good practices to keep slab to keep a slab foundation strong through the years, I remember a foundation repair guy uh, came over to a previous house of ours, and he said it was important to keep the bottom part of the slab moistened to keep its strength. Is this myth or fact? Let's start with that. This is a two part thing here. Yeah. Wow. Um, so con- we're talking about building in the building process. That's different than lifetime of the house, right? Right. And um, we know that a lot of concrete crews, particularly for flat work, like to have the water cement ratio too high because they like to push it around more Mm -hmm. easily. Workability. Workability. And that has a big impact on uh, the strength of the concrete and how it cures. Right. Um, But I have never heard of anybody saying that I need to maintain a certain moisture content for the concrete to continue to be durable yeah so the the one thing that came to mind when i read that i remember growing up and i actually saw one of my neighbors doing it a dry spell in columbia missouri we have very expansive soil and people are outside watering their foundation like the one hour worth of water that you put on it every day is going to be the thing that makes your house not fall down or fall down well that's interesting because that's about the clay, not about the concrete. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so that's the only thing that I've ever heard that had to do with the, the the overall moisture content of what's going on in the house at long term. 
Well, and this whole issue of putting in a sand layer beneath the concrete with the idea that if you do that, it allows the concrete to dry down as well as up. And that led to all kinds of problems in the Building America program. We were building Science Corporation because it just becomes a reservoir for moisture. But the concrete guys do not like to have a plastic barrier right underneath the concrete because then it doesn't dry down at all. So I remember Joe Stiebrick saying more than once, we have to start stop doing slab work for the immediacy and the ease of installation when it's got to be durable yeah. for the life of the building. Your pore is one day. Exactly. The house is going to be here forever. It's a casting, actually. Sorry, casting. you're, you're yeah. correct. You're you know, correct. I got corrected by, I think it was Joe. Construction engineer at school used to correct us all the time. Because you, you, pour, you pour lemonade, you cast concrete. Well, and Joe said problem, part of the problem with pour is that there, there's too much emphasis on water and not enough on cement. Also, when you say lemonade instead of you pour water, lemonade sounds more belittling, too. So that's a good so I'm going to say that is a total myth and that is not based in science. And somebody's just decided at some point. Although that, I might consider a drip irrigation gets... system under my future slabs. <clears throat> and by the way, when I was doing work on negative side waterproofing, I read a book by a guy who um, is the seminal work on concrete. And now I can't remember his name. So we'll have. To make oh, sure so that's a good reference. Pete's resource <laughs> under this Q and A would be um, this guy whose name I can't remember. Damn, H. We'll get it to you. We'll get it to you. It's a great book on okay. concrete. Uh, also from B, I thought I read somewhere that it is not ideal to have mulch or, and dirt right up against the slab foundation, and that it's a good idea to have something like bull rock for the first 12 or so inches right against the slab foundation what about trees are we going to say no to a live oak uh, and their invasive root system but are there any trees that would be good for her area and it's houston so let's take that in a couple parts uh mulch and dirt right up against the foundation as a builder i'm going to say yeah no I, I don't want it right up against the foundation just from a like you're giving termites a better path to the house you're giving bugs and insects a better access route to the house i have some interesting insight on this one so can mulch, we judge whether or not it's interesting no, and you just I'm say i'm just it's gonna inside? tell you i'm gonna pre pre uh preempt preempt it but uh that's not what i was looking for sorry um it's it's in the same boat with your buddy's name there um anyways so the problem that i've seen with mulch honestly is people add it every year and as they add it like you create these gullies against the house mm -hmm. and it actually holds water against mm -hmm. the foundation. And the first year the house is built, you might have a negative slope away from the house. Mm -hmm. But a couple of years of mulching, now that thing is perfectly level or in some cases tilting back towards the house. Sure. We see it all the time. We see mulch up over the edge of the siding. You're, you're getting, especially uh, on walkouts. Where mm -hmm. there's a step in the foundation, the landscaping doesn't align with the step in the foundation. All of a sudden, you mm -hmm. have that wall that is wood and concrete, that union on the vertical or the horizontal happening inside of a planting bed. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is easy. We we pull all that crap away from the house. And and both... No more like, mulch. We should get rid of it entirely. That's both peastone position. and mulch break the fall of whatever's coming off the roof if you don't have gutters. But I hadn't thought about this, but the peastone is not going to... 
you know, is, is a better material because it's, it's not organic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then she talks about trees. Yeah, we're not going to plant big, heavy. Well, I think the, the root system is certainly one. I'd be more worried about the leaves and all the crap that falls the on my roof. falling on the roof every storm. And just Yeah, but just the water and, and the organic material. You get moss growing on your shingles. The shingles deteriorate, develop leaks. You know, age of roof goes down. I'd worry more about that than I would worry about a roof put or a root pushing up against the concrete. I I can think of a lot of reasons not to put a big tree next to the house. I'm trying to figure out why you would want to put a big tree right next to the house. I mean, we have a couple. So we built our house in an infill area, and there were 50 year old trees already on the property. We built our house in the shade. Like it's not right up against the house, but our house is shaded for a lot of the. A lot of the year once the once the trees leaf out. Yeah, but their root systems, you, you already kind of knew where they were Correct. when you dug your foundation. But uh, I think it's a good point for how we should be operating from a landscaping standpoint for our houses. We should be uh, back far enough that you can walk between the landscape and the house mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I don't want those bushes rubbing up against my siding or the windows or anything like that. I don't want, you know, we, we went through a big period in our market of taking out yew bushes that are right up against the house that were planted at sixties ranches that have tap roots that are like six or eight inches in diameter. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, those suckers are causing foundation problems. Yeah. We actually have a, we have exactly what you're talking about in the front of this, our house here in Durham, New Hampshire. I noticed that when I walked in. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. You're so gentle. <laughs> okay, from Mark. Uh there has been a lot of discussion. Is this Mark from Kansas? Uh, I don't know who this oh. is. Uh there's been a lot of discussion about the use of HRVs and ERVs in home construction and several posts also discussing the need to include whole home dehumidifiers to regulate humidity levels within these tighter homes. With the HEPA filters on some of these ventilating dehumidifiers, is there a case going to just use a ventilating dehumidifier and skip the HRV ERV? Whoa, that's interesting. Okay, so we know that the HRV, which is the heat recovery ventilator, which only transfers sensible load from the two air streams. Then we have an energy recovery ventilator which I think can also be called an enthalpic recovery ventilator because enthalpic means both the latent and the sensible load and that transfer between the two airstreams. Um, so let's start with you can't dehumidify interior air with an ERV. You can help to maintain the difference in moisture content between the incoming and outgoing streams, but you're not actually, it's not a heat pump. You can't actually move moisture against the gradient. You can only sort of temper the blending of the two uh, latent content. So, um, And an HRV doesn't. And an HRV, well, interestingly, HRVs dehumidify during the winter quite often, but that's just incidental, right? So the, Is that a product of the heating element? Well, it's that the warm, moist air inside gets oh. pumped out, right? And dry and air comes cool, in. Dry air in. It's not by sort of design. It's just happenstance. It's the air that it's bringing in. It's not a mechanism that the device is doing. It's the air that it's transporting. Exactly. Sorry. So they 
So they do dehumidify, but it's not their purpose. And they certainly can't do it when you need the dehumidification most, which is during the summer. summer. Yeah. Um, so when do you need to whole house dehumidify? And to me, that's a really interesting question because as we build better buildings, we increase the length of the shoulder seasons, which means that there are more times that the house doesn't need cooling and heating, but might need dehumidification. So this falls under one of Joe Stebrick's favorite phrases I have, which is no good deed goes unpunished. You've now made the house perform better. You've increased the shoulder seasons, which is great because you're not heating or cooling, but now all of a sudden you may need whole house dehumidification. So in other words, when it's 75 degrees outside and my house is staying cool enough that my AC doesn't kick on. Exactly. The air conditioning is no longer providing dehumidification or if it is running, it's not running for long enough cycles to make a difference. Uh, and so now we have a humidity issue that we have to figure out how to deal with. And this led to a ton of work by Building Science Corporation at the tail end of us being there, Steve, where Armin Rudd and Joe were doing quite a bit of work on how do we, can we do whole house dehumidification without buying a dehumidifier designed to be integrated with the space conditioning, heating and cooling, because they're more expensive. And they tried to do like a, a, a big box version of a $350, you know, small quantity dehumidifier in a closet that was tied to the, um, to the, to the mechanical system. So sort of an inexpensive way of getting, uh, that dehumidification spread over the whole building. And that's tough, tough yeah. to do a less expensive version of whole house dehumidification. It's funny you should say that because I have now a ducted dehumidifier, not connected to the space conditioning system of our new house here. Um, but it's designed to dehumidifier the entire first, uh, the basement floor, which is about 1,200 square feet. And so the, the issue, well, I guess if, there, if you're filtering the dehumidifier and it really, the, the problem is we're not bringing in any new air at that point, right? That's our challenge. Well, so I think this gets to the sort of the magic box question. You know, do we have a system that is designed to space condition, humidify, dehumidify, and ventilate? And we get back to that question of the amount of air you need to move to heat and cool is so different than the amount of air you need to ventilate that we're, we're caught in this. They're already going to have separate motors and separate ducts and things that lead different directions and serve different purposes. And and even if you get the loads down to tiny, tiny space conditioning loads, you still have the problem of needing to move more air to space condition than to to ventilate. So, Does that make sense? No, probably not, Mark. <laughs> uh, it's a nice idea. I like the thinking outside the box that you have going there, but I think that there, 
what you're saying. They're separate things. They do separate things. The the load that they have is the challenge. What, one last thing I will say is that they're, you know, ACA, the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, has a new manual. You know, there's manual J, S, and D. Um, but there's a new one called LLH, which is manual low for homes. low load homes. And a big part of that manual is by climate, do you need to whole house dehumidify or, or what does that load look like? So I would I'd suggest that that be a resource for this one. And so uh, just so you guys know, we're not recording in our normal space. We're actually recording at uh, in Peter's world headquarters here. Wait, the, hold, the hold on. Building right. Not the normal space. Like well, that's the, the only space that we've recorded in. Well, right. I know. But why can't this be an equal? OK, Studio B. <laughs> Studio B. Thank you. World Studio headquarters B. of uh, building right. And as you mentioned, there there is a, a dehumidifier in the space. Tell us a little bit about the dehumidifier and why you chose to put one in. Yeah. So um, the square footage in this basement is about the same square footage as the first floor. It's only a two-story building. And um, we don't need we don't need dehumidification on the second floor in the summer because the air conditioning is running enough in the second floor, that zone, to give us the dehumidification we need. But the, there's almost no need in the basement for cooling. But the relative humidity is about 66%. Um, so we needed a whole space dehumidification. So the, maybe we'll do a short video on this that we can connect to this podcast. But w we used an Ultra 70 from Santa Fe. Um, and it's 8-inch duct. So we pull air from the finished part of the basement through the dehumidifier. It exhausts into the unfinished basement. The door right behind me is louvered, and so the two spaces are connected. The waste heat from the dehumidifier gets dumped into the unfinished basement, um, which actually is cooler yeah. than this part. Um, so it's working out great. It's a relatively quiet, really highly efficient dehumidifier. And I'm going to use a Humid Pro from Honeywell to do a remote sensor so that the dehumidifier is not reading from the laundry room. It's reading from the center of the space here in the finished basement. And you guys are climate zone? Climate zone six. But hats off to Santa Fe for having, you know, a really, really good line of dehumidifiers for all sites, all sorts of um, spot and whole building dehumidification system. And when we start talking about all these systems, there's this push to like make mechanical rooms that much bigger because they have other things going into them. The duct work on that thing is almost the same size as the dehumidifier. It is. It's you know, pretty it's a cool. tiny suitcase. It's mounted over top of other things that aren't the mechanical room. Like it, it fits nicely in there. Yeah, it's it's a it's a well engineered system of dehumidifiers, no doubt. Steve, do you have any closing comments on any of these? I, questions? I need to bring in the future. I need to bring caramels in a book. So these <laughs> podcast recordings, caramels in a book. And so a comfy, so a comfy chair. So I saw so I do when Peter's talking. <laughs> you know question. There are worthers. many people that would say, I need like alcohol in a book, but you chose caramels. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, if you think about it, it's just as arbitrary as a cup of coffee or. So I trick. thought you were going to say. You don't Peter, even know a movie that's from, do you? It, no. It gets really it sticky. 
to talk Top about Gun? Peter. No? And is it from Greece? Oh, Those are the only movies Good I know Will you Hunting. like. Okay. Oh, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, that's, when he talks to the really... girl and he says, "Why don't we go for a couple or some caramels in the morning?" And she says, "Why not coffee?" He said, "Well, caramels are just as arbitrary as a cup of coffee." Yeah, I don't so, remember that from the book. Okay, from the movie. Yeah. So, anyway, was that Minnie Driver? Who was? Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought that this was how this podcast was going to end? <laughs> Peter talking about Minnie Driver. Uh, okay, so. We need to remind you that we have uh, a YouTube channel, that the podcast has a YouTube channel. Smash that subscribe button. Exactly. Smash. That's what he says. Uh, Someone convinced him that that was better than saying it another way. Well, hit is just such a weak word. Nobody nobody remembers hit the subscribe button. People remember smash. Remember the the watermelon guy? Gallagher? Gallagher. Don't remember him that well, do you? smashes watermelon so i remember like seeing him smashing he had the little like irish cap and stuff and might he would might smash watermelons with his you uh, might be but it was like uh no it was you're not too not old for this. New when i was young and learned about it he was a comedian people in the front row had to wear poly so there's building science tied into it <laughs> so your barriers and so many driver and gallagher yeah. Make sure you go to the <laughs> to the podcast on YouTube. There is content other than these uh, podcasts that you're able to listen to. And There's, for the record, you brought up Top Gun first this time. I did. You're so right. It's his, he's on an anti-military. No. Or a anti, pro-military. Pro-military. Sorry. Anti, he's on a pro-military uh, movement here. He's trying to dig out of his hole. But that's all right, people. Is it a foxhole? I got uh, your back. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get through this. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Smash that subscribe button. Go to YouTube. Watch us. Leave some great comments. Throw your questions up here so in the future we have something to talk about. Um, and make the questions like really easy or, or really fun. Not this dehumidification <laughs> stuff where Peter rants for 45 minutes. Um, I want to all have fun. Um, but and, anyways. And we should note, if you comment on one of the YouTube videos and you're asking Steve a specific question, if he doesn't answer, it's because he doesn't think your question is worth his time. That's you true. should know that he goes, nah. The, it's what not. was that comment I just heard on that? See? I'm not bored enough to talk to you right now. <laughs> it's like the perfect insult. Excuse me. I'm really not bored enough to talk to you right now. Wow. I said that to the person on the plane the other day. They kind of looked at me like I had three heads, but that's all right. That's the benefit of here? being, no, not yet. Why not? <laughs> uh, that's the benefit of being your size. Yeah. You can kind of look at you people can just and say, like, hey, how are you doing? Are you going up. home? <laughs> just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really not bored enough to talk to you not right today. now. <laughs> okay. What's well, none of your goddamn I'm business? put on one of my Saturday Night Live muscle. <laughs> Remember those goats? Well, hey, I'm making a shout out. I, I was telling these guys, I sat behind Miles Garrett the other day. He's uh, like defensive uh, end for uh, uh, Cincinnati Bengals. Just total bad man. He was. He means that in and a good he, way. He yes. scared you. He was frightening well, when you to take scale. a look at this I've, guy. I've, I've never scale, seen you frightened. He was, he was like, holy crap. Like, I don't. Th- th- I want this guy to be my friend. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Well, that. So you didn't say to him. No. I'm not bored He was actually enough. a really cool guy. He said hello. Since we're closing this out with the longest ending in history. Uh, we it's were, not quite the longest ending in history, but there's this Donna Summer song that ran on for like, <laughs> I forget what it is. Oh, Steve, Steve and I walking around IBS this year, he goes, hey, that guy's really tall. 
And as we got closer to him, you're taller like than by him. My shoulder. <laughs> but that happens all the time. Like I, it happens to me all the time at like airports and stuff. I go, holy crap, look at the size of that guy. And then I walk by him and the guy's like up to my shoulder. You can see the top of his like, head. <laughs> all right. Okay. Anyways. There it is. That's hey, where we, we did see it. the world's smallest person today at breakfast. Yes, we did. This girl was probably like 80 pounds. Wow. It was kind of frightening. So, so we'll leave it on that one. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. See ya.